Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you've been counting down the days until you get a calendar, or you've just been itching to tell someone about your allergies, or maybe you've just been wondering why abbreviate is such a long word, this is the Beyondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Early European explorers of Australia, such as Burke and Wills, or escaped convicts who fled into the bush, remained bound and trapped by an understanding of the landscape as barren desolation. The reality was, for those who knew where to look and how to find, such as the Indigenous First Peoples, who had lived on this land for millennia, they were in fact surrounded by abundance. European explorers believed the bush beyond their camp to be a treacherous wilderness and Indigenous Australians to be a threat, so they assumed that anything they would eat or drink needed to be carried in with them. They loaded horses with supplies they assumed to be essential and relied heavily on stores they bought with them. Yet partly because of this, they were unable to see the abundance of nourishment the land itself provided. And therefore, the colonial history of Australia is littered with stories of explorers who died of hunger and thirst, unable to see that they were in fact surrounded by food and water. Equally, our history includes shocking violence, arising out of a quest to dominate the environment, assert superiority, and a perception of always being under threat. The lack, which led to so much failure and despair, was not the amount of stores they took with them, but their lack of ability to see the abundance of country, connect with its inhabitants, and adapt to the rhythms and seasons of the incredible landscape they are entering into. Franciscan contemplative Richard Rohr says, Most people do not see things as they are, because they see things as they are. We all have baggage that affects the way we see things. We all have glasses through which we see the world that are are smudged by wounds or fears or or, or coloured by hopes or desires or or preferences. We all project ourselves onto the world and, and people around us and we see reflections of ourselves back again. 
we all sometimes live out of our small selves or our small minds and we face the challenge of moving beyond it to something deeper, truer and more real. Move beyond your small mind For the kingdom is at hand Move beyond your small mind For the kingdom is at hand Awaken, oh my heart Awaken, oh my heart So I can move beyond this Today we explore the practice by which we might see things as they really are, a practice called contemplation. It's an old and very religious word, one which conjures up ideas of prayer or meditation. But our next guest describes the spiritual practice or spiritual discipline of contemplation simply as seeing the real. It's very easy to treat spiritual practices or disciplines as an experience or an activity in which we retreat or remove ourselves from, from daily living. And much like our explorers develop stores so that we may endure the challenging journey ahead. However, true spiritual practice, well, it equips and enables us to see differently amidst life. It transforms our journeys from endurance of and escape from the world to journeys of discovery and sustenance. Rather than seeing scarcity and threat, we cultivate eyes capable of seeing goodness, seeing beauty and the abundance of our world and the people in it. We develop eyes to see others and ourselves with greater understanding, eyes to see what's truly in us and around us. In embarking on the practice of contemplation, indeed a life of contemplation, we develop different eyes we develop a different way of being in the world. We move beyond our small ego wounds and wishes and move into a freer, more expansive and generous larger mind. Richard Rohr is one of the most globally recognised teachers in the Christian world today, sought after for his teaching on contemplation and Christian mysticism. He's a Franciscan priest living in New Mexico and is the founder of the Centre for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque. Rohr has been a real hero of mine, someone who has the capacity to integrate spirituality and psychology in a unique and invaluable way. Despite his world acclaim and despite that after our very interview with him, we found out that he'd had Bono and the Edge pop over a fortnight before. What was so striking was how normal and grounded
surrounded he was. The humility and the integration of the man is astounding. It was so apparent that he not only spoke about contemplation, but he actually lived from this larger contemplative mind. So we bring you this interview feeling grateful to have been able to meet in person, as well as his black dog Pluto at the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Richard Raw from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome to Beyondering. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you, and I'm honored that you would travel this far. Thank you. Something we ask many of our guests as a starting point, a very easy question, Richard. So, what is it? It's what for you is the point or the value of the Christian story? You know, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too abstract or theological because it isn't. But I, I think for me, what the Christian message answers better than any of the world religions. And I'm not in competition with the other world religions. That's not my point. But the question of incarnation and the question of suffering. And human beings, if they don't resolve those, they don't know how to be at home in this world. You know. Now the irony is that so many Christians don't appear to be at home in this world or uh, trying to evacuate to the other world all the time. And yet we have the material by the mystery of incarnation, God took on materiality, physicality. That makes this world meaningful, you know, that it's not a place you want to escape from. God chose our environment as, in Jesus, as his environment. And then, as you well know, by the middle of life, if you haven't found an answer for human suffering, you have to split. You have to you become schizophrenic because there's just too much of it. You have to live in denial. And so Jesus, particularly on the cross, shouted to history, uh, I'm going to show you a way to find meaning and purpose and direction and depth, even in suffering, Uh, which is still, of course, a, a huge problem for all of us. It, it doesn't appeal to the logical mind, as you know, especially when you're the one doing the suffering. But for those two reasons alone, there's others, but I'm quite happy to be Christian. You talk a lot about uh, non-dual thinking. You write a lot about mm-hmm. non-dual thinking, that the world isn't black and white. It's not us versus them. It's not one against the other. As we sit here in this Um, post-election week. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you move past, what practices can you use to move past this dual thinking? Right. Well, thank God you even asked the question. You know, 10 years ago, most Christians wouldn't have asked the question the intelligent way you did because we were all so utterly trapped inside of dualistic thinking. It's the form of thought that has overtaken the Western world and is called thinking. (laughs) And as you probably heard me say, uh, this for me is a testimony to the fact that Christianity has not been doing its job, that we have not been teaching an alternative consciousness. We, We let people stay in their argumentative oppositional mind and inside of that teach them the gospel, which means... They cannot understand most of the Gospels. Uh, For example, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. You cannot understand that with a dualistic mind, you know. Uh, 
My Father's sun shines on the good and the bad. His rain falls on the just and the unjust. You, you might read that from the pulpit. You don't believe it. You're incapable of believing it with a dualistic mind. And then, of course, my recent material on the Trinity. I sincerely believe that the doctrine of the Trinity, or what I'm going to call the law of three, was made to order to undercut the law of two. Uh, two, whenever you divide into dualistic thinking, Republican, Democrat, as we Americans do, gay, straight, Protestant, Catholic, male, female, even. Uh, pick any dualistic split. What you see the mind does within a nanosecond is you choose sides. You do, everybody, and when I tell this guy, I say, you just watch yourself. It's automatic. Whenever you're given a choice between two, your mind immediately judges one to be higher and one to be lower. Yeah, I like that. I don't like that. Uh It's good, therefore that's bad. That's right. It's the stating of preferences, which the ego loves, and then, of course, you align yourself with the superior side all the time. It's just such deceptive thinking. And it's, but after the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries, we Christians got tired of being called stupid or mythological or medieval. And so we wanted to appear smart. And so we basically took on the pattern of thinking of the scientific mind. Now there's much to be said for that. As you know, I do not believe dualistic thinking is in competition with non-dual. It's just that dualistic thinking can get you so far to distinguish left from right. But when you deal with the issues of love, life, death, suffering, God, infinity, and I've now had sexuality, you can't deal with those in any wise way with dualistic black and white. So dualistic thinking is good as far as it goes, but you will hit a ceiling when you deal with these big issues that we live or die for. Uh, And religion at the higher levels, because they recognize most people didn't know how to get there, at least the Catholic word in the first 1300 years was the contemplative mind. I know that isn't a word familiar to most Christians, but the reason so many of us are returning to it is we're seeing we're still trapped in the same problem that you can't understand spiritual things with your normal monkey mind, obsessive mind, which is a dualistic mind. You know? It just can't get you very far. It really can't. And I almost think the, the tragedy of this election cycle, since you mentioned it, here in America, is revealing that to a lot of people that had to be subject to this low-level argumentation for 15 months nonstop and to end up with what we ended up with. It's just, is this, we're bereft of wisdom. We're yeah. bereft of, of anything. And, you know, I hate to say it, 82% of white evangelicals voted for the, yeah. the president-elect. Yeah. This is going to stand as a judgment mm. for decades, you yeah. know. You love Jesus, <laughs> and you love the four Gospels, and you couldn't see through this? Yeah. And I'm not saying the other side was, was holy or anything. That's sure, not my point. Sure. Not. But this was so far off the mark. Yes. And the basic discernment of value and meaning and purpose and energy was unavailable. Mm. 
so, to you the know, white uh, middle class is sort of unbelievable. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, even trying to burrow down further, I'm picturing Americans that now uh, mm. live in an era where fear is escalating. Yeah. It, it seems to be only in, yeah. enhancing this binary mm. dualistic thinking. You know, what does it look like on the ground in the face of mm. hatred and some of the, the, the yeah. voices that are given volume, bigotry mm. and prejudice? And in the face of those, how does one mm. offer a contemplative stance mm. and the practices that might inform that? You're right on. It comes down to practice because without it, you will not, I mean, just to be almost physiological about it, you will not rewire the old wiring. Unless you, it's retraining, it's behavioral training. You have to watch what your mind does, uh, go back to this argumentative, oppositional, win-lose worldview. And you have to be, first of all, humiliated by, my gosh, I'm back there after 10 seconds. I'm back there after, because it's the way I've thought for 40 years, do you understand? So the older you are, the more important it is because you're more trained in it. So any school that's teaching you uh, how to recognize it. And that means, I think, some degree of solitude and silence. I hate to be so traditional, but it's just, it started with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. It's constant in the Eastern Church. When the Protestant tra tradition came along, it didn't realize it was only reacting to one half of the pie, which was the Western Church, the Roman Church. Uh, which was always much less contemplative than the Easter, you know? And so uh, that's why it wasn't even part of the discussion in the early Reformation, except maybe with the Quakers, you know? Uh, but the rest of us just, we liked the argumentative mind. So now the introducing of practices, which I'm so glad you were, had the humility to ask, almost seems, well, is this a new religion? But that was recognized early on in the Desert Fathers, that you had to see the problem, and the problem was largely mental, and then you had to find a means to stop doing it. <laughs> That's called meditation or contemplation, where you watch yourself, oh my God, I'm negative every 30 seconds. I'm lustful every 30 seconds. I'm whatever, whatever your obsessive pattern is. You've got to see what the alcoholics call your stinking thinking. <laughs> uh, and when you see your stinking thinking, then alone are you motivated, I gotta change this. This is problematic. I'm not I'm never gonna come to a high level of consciousness if every 20 seconds it's an egocentric, self-referential, what will this get me? How will this make me look? Who will love me if I do it? Oh, it's, I mean, I'm 73 and a half now, and it's still humiliating. We do it right in this room. We, I was there this morning for 20 minutes. I said, there I am. There's a line, I think it's in Proverbs. The dog returns to its vomit. It's not a very attractive, <laughs> not a very attractive metaphor. And it's not something but, we'll enact liturgically. That's right, that's right. But uh, I say that to myself, Richard, you're going back to your vomit. There's nothing there. Now, with me, it's usually... Uh, negative, because I'm a one on the Enneagram. It's usually negative uh, resentment about stupidity. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't suffer fools gladly, you know. Yes. And but this is just me. It's not God in me. You mm -hmm. yeah. This is the way Richard likes to think. Now I can see it and pretty much nip it in the bud. But I'll if if I didn't see it, I wouldn't nip it in the bud. 
Yeah. I would indulge it. Mm. I would feed it entirely. Yeah. So there's so many schools, you know, contemplative outreach, the world community for Christian meditation. I went over, uh, oh, this was six, seven years ago, to visit Townsville, Australia, which is the only diocese uh, in the Catholic world that I'm aware of in the world, where the wonderful bishop, uh, all the way down, has made the teaching of contemplation the pastoral program of the entire diocese of Townsville, Australia. Right. I mentioned that to you, so maybe yeah, some of your yeah. people uh, feel affirmed by it. But I went in these classes of kindergarten kids, third grade, eighth grade, high school, the teachers. Mm -hmm. he, it was already in force five years at that time. Mm -hmm. So now it'd be 10 or 11 years. I would love someone to go to Townsville mm -hmm. and see the fruit of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe we will. Yeah, I would yeah. encourage you to do it. You know, I hope and pray it's bearing fruit. Oh, yeah, be beautiful. It's amazing. But it's yeah. also intimidating for me. I mean, I love the image of a dog returning to its vomit mm. because you go, well, why would it? You know, why would yeah. you return to the vomit? And yet we do. We, we do. harbor and we attach to these yeah. thoughts that are counterproductive, yeah. that are angry, that are vengeful, whatever, and yet we feed them so easily. We return and to we, our environment. And we seem to also be drawn to others who spew the same kinds yeah, of bile. Right. Yeah. That, that yeah. That's what forms, you know, the, the group. Yeah. Is you surround yourself with people who are at your same low level of consciousness. Yes. So your ego will not be called into question. Sure. Because that'll that'll help us see if we were to not go yeah, to those Very good. Sure. Very good. Right. And this is uh, I'm afraid the humiliation that the whole Christian culture has to suffer. Mm. And it's why so many people are leaving us. That they see the garden variety Christian in the way he thinks, is not much different than anybody else. So we deserve to lose members, you know, if we do not present an alternative consciousness. So thanks for centering in on that no right at the beginning. No it's crucial. My adult children are all into these coloring books for mindfulness. Grown men and women are carrying around pencil cases and spending hours trying not to go outside the lines. I'd be happy if my husband would spend a bit more time trying to keep within the lines. A bit of mindfulness in the bathroom is what he needs. Honestly, Richard, I have to sit on that. Do you think this modern mindfulness craze replaces the need for prayer and contemplation? Well, Beryl, I get your point. I hope I do anyway. Let me try to respond. Uh, you know, I was just at a meeting with a number of contemplative teachers up in Colorado a few weeks ago, and we addressed that very question. Actually, I don't know how you use the word mindfulness in, in Australia, but we all see it as not what we're teaching. Right? <laughs> you know, mindfulness still puts the emphasis on mind, do you understand? Whereas the true older contemplative tradition is letting go of mind, not trying to be more uh, attentive or more uh, focused, which is the way some mindfulness yes. people understand. Uh, let me jump back, I hope this is helpful, it's very traditional. In the classic 
enumeration of levels of prayer. We had lexio, forgive the Latin, which was reading, spiritual reading. Oratio, which was spoken prayers, verbal prayers, recited prayers, which still use the mind. Meditation, which was more uh, prayerful reflection, let's say on a gospel passage, on a teaching of Jesus, or, but it was still using the mind. All the first three still use the mind. What got lost was the fourth level, contemplatio. So, lexio, oratio, meditatio, contemplatio. After the Reformation and the Enlightenment, we pretty much no longer taught people how to go to the fourth level. So, I would define mindfulness still as usually at the maybe second or third levels. I would. I don't know if that's the way Beryl is using it. Uh, but contemplatio, contemplation, is not trying to be mindful. It's trying to let go of your need to think. <laughs> I know that a lot of evangelicals don't like that word very much because they say, oh, the devil will get in. That's just not true. Well, but, he's saying evangelicals don't like thinking. Uh, <laughs> well, they, they don't like let go of oh, thinking yeah, right. because yeah. they're so dominantly thinking. Yeah. And they've never been told that. You know, They think we Catholics think too much, but actually evangelicalism is another form of the same thing. Yeah. It's all in the head. So um, we're trying to encourage them to move beyond that. Uh, now, I'm not sure how Beryl was using the word prayer either. Uh, if she means, as most Christians do, intercessory prayer, telling God what we need and asking God for things, I would just encourage her to look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us, not to do that. Why do you Babylon as the pagans do? Don't you know your father already knows what you need? When Jesus goes for 40 days alone in the desert, that means he's not going to the temple. That means he's not reciting Psalms unless he's got it memorized. It means what we would later call, what the desert fathers would call the prayer of quiet, where you, you simply observe. Contemplative basically means to see, not to think, to just gaze. And this broad, deep gaze becomes a different way of seeing, but it's not processed through, what do I think about that? Now, you can resort to that, but pure contemplation is when that stops, when you're just gazing and realizing, and you're not processing. So I hope that helps her question because sure. it's a very good question. Okay. Do you, so, do yeah. you, are you surprised or are you perhaps encouraged by this appetite that there appears to be for mindfulness today? Do you know one of my publishers told me my biggest single demographic is young male evangelicals? Mm -hmm. So just to affirm what you said, the Catholics don't listen to me because, <laughs> because we have the word contemplation. They think they know it. But evangelicals are humble enough to know they don't know. We never were taught about this once, and they weren't. So it brings them to a humility and this, this hunger that's really quite beautiful. I mean, when I teach young millennial evangelicals, God, they're just all taking notes and they're asking questions and yeah. pure curiosity and sincere curiosity. 
you know because it's not a hand-me-down yeah what you have to think we never got this and uh, they just recognize that it you know when jesus says there's so many one-liners in jesus be careful how you see Mm. be careful how you hear you could read that real quickly in a whole context of of lines from jesus and not realize he's teaching contemplation yeah be careful how you hear Mm. be careful how you see There's a lot more. So if what you're advocating for is finding that space within us where we join with the inner observer, where we remove ourselves from our behaviors, our impulses, our feelings, our thoughts. Our compulsive behavior. Our compulsive behavior and and are able to observe the river that's flowing. Very good. Um, So where do you see and how do you articulate the sacred and God in that process? And what happens as we detach from the river and find ourselves on the bank able to observe what what is the change that's evident as we do that you know i'm this just comes to mind now i don't think i've ever said it before what the experience of the sacred is and it's only one way of saying i'm not saying it's the only is when you experience intrinsic inherent meaning most meaning is extrinsic what i apply to it because, oh, that can make me money, or she's good-looking, or, you understand, it's all egocentric, what I like about it, the stating of my preferences. But when you find inherent, intrinsic meaning, what that evokes in the soul is awe, is wonder, is desire. Is, it, it allures you into it. It's the essential experience of the holy. Now, if you want to have such moments, I'm going to get back to the basic disciplines of solitude and silence. You'll have them much more if you allow yourself periods of solitude and silence, where all you can do is gaze at the naked moment (laughs) without, I'm not making money now, I'm not solving a problem now, I'm not, there's no purposefulness. You know, that little ant is just crawling across that leaf. And God knows that. And that somehow is unto the glory of God. I mean, you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper. If you grant gratuity and intrinsic meaning, intrinsic, this is good. This is a value. That's the experience of the sacred. It's not trumping up. Oh, why did I use that word? <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip. You know, uh, like we Catholics did with the high mass with incense and candles and vestments and evangelicals do with rock bands. You know, we have to create entertainment because people don't know what to do with their mind or their heart without yeah. entertainment. You know, when you can live without entertainment and the inherent meaning of the ant crawling over the leaf right, is deep entertainment, you've got the experience of the sacred. I would say the foundational religious emotion is wonder and awe. Mm. That, and you know, Einstein said that. This is not a unique thing to Christianity. And what we've got are a lot of Christians who aren't capable of wonder and awe. They just have answers. Answers for everything. Mm. And never do they kneel and kiss the ground, as it were, mm-hmm. and, and are brought to tears by the beauty of an ant crawling across a tree that God knows about? And wasn't Jesus talking about this when he says, you know, even the hairs of your head are all counted, 
or he knows every sparrow that falls from a tree. You know, Jesus is talking about the grace of the insignificant moment when it becomes inherently beautiful, when it becomes inherently revelatory. So um, we've got to restore Christianity's capacity for awe and wonder and reverence. Great invitation. We were going to ask you about mysticism, and I sense you're touching on that now. Yeah, I'm going there. It's a word that, uh, well, it's back in vogue. And in fact, statistics and polls are saying that 50% of people report to having had a transformative mystical experience. So we see you as our international man of mysticism. (laughs) So can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Because it's a word that not everyone would use. And is that sort of what you're saying? In, in that experience you just outlined and, and what, what else is going on in a mystical experience? Okay, so it doesn't become too mystified. <laughs> Let me bring it down to earth. You can demystify it. <laughs> demystify it. Uh, for me, a mystic is simply someone who has experiential knowledge of God, not seminary textbook, not Bible quotes that they repeat, but I, I know it. I'm not saying Paul said, I'm not even saying Jesus said, but I'm saying. Now, I think you're right, though. And uh, for years of spiritually directing people, it's amazing to me how many people had such moments of deep inner knowing already as children. Uh, Unfiltered by the Yeah, by theology or Bible quotes. uh, uh, that's what was so beautiful about these children I observed in Townsville. They were so quiet, little sitting around in a circle with their eyes closed. <laughs> Kindergarten kids, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I think they're much closer to the experience. Are either of you fathers or do you have children? Yeah, 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 they're good, yeah. they're good. Uh, and if you can tell me a way to keep my kids quiet. But they are, are much closer to the primal unitive experience. We grow away from it as we grow up. By the age of seven, we're pretty much, we have left the garden psychologically. And we start defining ourselves by all the little clever things that the world has taught us. And you can't hate anybody for that. It's We all have to leave the garden. But then we desire in our in-depth soul to come back to it. So mysticism is, is experiential religion. See, neither of our traditions were really told we should trust experience. Yeah. We, if you were Catholic or Orthodox, you were told to trust the Pope and bishops and priests. Mm-hmm. And we didn't realize they were told the same thing. So they have no experience to trust. Yeah. You know? If you were Protestant, you were told to trust the Bible or Christian songs. But it was always second level at best. Second level experience, do you see? Mm. And it just took different forms in Catholic and Protestant. Yes. But in many ways, we were playing the same game. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. There, there wasn't much soul in it. There wasn't much inner life. There wasn't much inner awareness. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, therefore, much love. I don't know how else to say. I mean, the early Catholicism I was raised in, the early seminary, he told me the first day, you keep the laws and the laws will keep you. You know, the highest virtue was obedience. It was not love. It was not love. 
and the Franciscans, who should have known better. But we were a part of 1950s America, where we were an entirely conformist culture. Mm. Everything was conformity, conformity, conformity mm. to the dominant consciousness, mm. not realizing that dominant consciousness was much more about America than Jesus. Yes. <laughs> yes. We, we covered it up with some Jesus language, but mm. it was very little interested in Jesus. You've mentioned it a couple of times, your new book, The Divine Dance. I don't mean to be pushing it, sorry. No, that's all right. All from all the bookstores. No, it's, it's The Divine Dance. It's a beautiful book. I'm halfway through it, and I'm noting as I'm reading it a, a tremendous passion. I've read a lot of your books, um, and I've loved every one of them. Oh, the, in this book, there's this, there's this passion that's so obvious, yeah. and almost, I don't know, almost an urgency in that it feels yeah. like there's a message you feel needs to be heard. Yeah. What is it that you are, through that book, really keen to communicate to people you feel needs to be heard? See, I feel the reason oh, Christianity is in such poor shape is that we got the shape of God wrong. And when the shape of God is off, everything built on top of it is off. Everything. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I've been saying to groups recently, I think later centuries will recognize the first 2,000 years were still early Christianity. Uh. We're still in early Christianity. And the real cataclysmic revelation of the nature of God. It, it's ironically quantum physics and modern science and biology which is giving us new imagination to imagine the shape of God. Isn't that interesting? That we thought for several centuries science was our enemy, and it's ending up being our best friend. Yeah. You know? And I mean that. The, the atom itself, you know? Three particles bonded together. That's the word that science, atomic scientists use, mm -hmm. that the three particles are bonded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when we first broke that bond, was right here south of Albuquerque in 1945, mm -hmm. first time in known human history. We destabilized the atom, and Robert Oppenheimer said a few weeks later, we must call that spot Trinity Site. If you'd go three hours south of here, you'd visit Trinity Site, where we destabilized the basic structural element of the universe, and it created the atom bomb. Is There's some archetypal meaning going on. So what's science showing us? What are you seeing that's aligning? That, in, you know, I hope I say it toward the beginning of the book. In the beginning is the relationship. That's the best way to start. Uh, this is very different than God being a being who by a flick of his finger says, let there be light. But the very shape of being is absolute friendship. Now, you have to think about that. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, the very shape of being is love. The very shape of being is communion. It's not there is God, a God who is a being who whimsically now and then decides to love some people. Okay, I'll love the Jews, but I'll hate the Egyptians. That can't be true if God is Trinity. God loves the Egyptians just as much as the Jewish people. They just, we all think we're special at first, of course. So if God is A being God's somewhere, yeah. somewhere else, yeah, and, somewhere and else. then intervenes or arrives. And you can relate to God as an object. Yes. Subject, object. Mm -hmm. Now, 
God is subjectivity itself that can only be known subject to subject, center to center, love to love, heart to heart. John of the Cross, our Catholic mystic said, God cannot be known by thinking. God can only be known by loving God. Mm. God refuses to be known by thinking. Mm. That just undoes most of our Catholic theologizing for the last however, where we've tried to think God. So God is not a being. God is the, well, this is Acts 17, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So we've got scriptural basis for this, a lot more than that quote. But he's not a being. He's the nature of being. He is being itself. So he's not any object that you can relate to like any other object. He's the energy between all objects. Which is always an energy of gravity, electromagnetic fields, cycles, circulatory systems, sex. Everything in the universe is drawn to everything else. <laughs> Love, as Teilhard de Chardin says, is the structural shape of the universe. Everything's in love with everything, you know? And the animals seem to live in that ecosystem with greater calmness than humans do. We're the only species that was given the freedom not to to remain in that flow. We could choose not to live according to our nature. We can split the atom. Yeah, we can split the atom. Very good. That's exactly right. I mean, when I was reading your book, the the line that emerged was actually sort of a line you used to me, Lucas, in theological college. And I was just wrestling with this God who loves that I sort of was taught that was somewhere and loving and I should then be open to this love. and But what you sort of talk about is not a God so much that somewhere yes. sending love, but actually a God through which we love, that almost That's right. it's in a all, weird way. We're back in participation. Yeah, we're back it, it, it was participation. almost the currency that we exchange of energy. Yes, yes. Yeah. Every love flow that's happening in the universe is the Trinitarian life of God. Is the Trinitarian. And it's what's keeping everything moving. Yeah. Everything, 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 everything. Mm-hmm. And once you learn to see that, that's why you can pray always. Everything is a cause for delight and joy and praise of God. Everything. And as you say, these are ideas that are largely... The, the, the Western ideas of, of church and traditions are largely barren of, but perhaps the Eastern ideas open up, open us more up to. Yeah, because some of them didn't fight about the shape of God as much as we did, the metaphysics of religion. Some of them got there easier. And the ones I'd like to point out, you know, you're living surrounded by Indian reservations here. New Mexico is filled with native tribes. I just spoke to some of them on Sunday. The native religions of the world often were closer to what I would call a Trinitarian notion of God than the three monotheistic religions. Because the three monotheistic religions got lost in words. And what did I say? Words are always argumentative. Words are all. That's why when we say in our Christian theology, Jesus, the word, that's real good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's real good. How did he interpret all the words? And he never used them in an argumentative way, mm-hmm. except to, to critique phony religion. That's the only time. Never quotes Joshua, Judges, Leviticus, Leviticus, except to say, love your neighbor as yourself. But the argumentative books of his own scriptures, he ignores them. 
And I, I don't know that a lot of churches have dealt with that, mm-hmm. how much he ignores and even speaks against mm-hmm. his own scriptures. So what is it that changes in the nature of faith if we see God as the impulse of love that actually wants to spill out from us and to us and between us? What does that mean for what faith looks like? Well, first of all, it makes us much more humble about how much we know and how much we don't know. Because suddenly I can't capture God. God is as available as the wind, which is what Pentecost said, by the way. God is as available as the flowing water, as the descending dove. Uh, This God is uncapturable, as John 3 says, you know, blows like the wind. Uh, And all of us who thought we had our own little Ark of the Covenant where we carried God around, certainly we Catholics did, uh, that just falls apart. And, and it's not up to you to decide anymore who has God and who doesn't. Because God is as accessible, as available as the wind and as the water and as the birds. And we used to call that, you know, we dismissed it as nature mysticism or native religions. When, uh, to give this a little orthodoxy, when John Paul II met with the native peoples here in our neighboring state of Arizona, he made a statement that the right-wing Catholics haven't forgiven him for. And he said, you, speaking to the native, you already saw the great spirit in everything. We have to convince Catholics of that. We have to convince Catholics of that. Um, With your your aboriginal peoples, of course. We thought we brought them God. Oh my God, what arrogance. Not a, and, and not only what damage have we done to the indigenous yes. people, but, but but what opportunities we've missed. There you go. Well said. Yeah. Well said. How beautiful. Uh, yeah. I used to, I started with the Indians here at Acoma Pueblo. I'd go out of my little orange pickup in the morning. I was taking the census. And on the east side of the house, the Pueblo mothers would come out. They'd line up their little kids next to them, facing the rising sun in complete silence. They'd just do this gesture of welcoming the first rays of the sun. Wow. And we thought we taught them how to pray. <laughs> we taught them how not to pray, I think, yeah, you know. Taught the prayer out of them. Yes. Yeah. They were much more naturally contemplative than we were. Wow. This is good for our humility now, but God's been humble all along. Mm. But unless Christianity suffers this humiliation, this necessary humiliation... I don't think we have much hope of renewing Christianity. We're going to remain a part of the problem. Uh, this is a question about Jesus. All right. Always about Jesus. Yeah. For many, for many of our listeners, the idea of Jesus being God is a challenge. Can you describe how you see the relationship between Jesus and God? What, what, and you use this term, the cosmic Christ. Yes, that's going to be my next book, if God gives me the year to, of health to do it. Uh, here's, I'm going to sound very conservative now after sounding so progressive. <laughs> to me, first of all, let's clarify this. To simply glibly say Jesus is God is not good theology. Jesus is the union of God and humanity. That's very different. So we created the problem by overstating or poorly stating our case. Now that I cannot give in on 
because I've got to, he's the archetype of what we are, what he is we also have become or must become, the union of human and divine. So if I give up on the divinity of Christ, then I'm going to give up on my divinity and your divinity. So first clarify that this glib statement, Jesus is God, we, we created a straw man, which is naturally shot down. We put, this is why my book on the Trinity, for me, is so important. What, what we did is we pulled Jesus out of the Trinity. The Trinity is God. Jesus is not God. I know that sounds shocking. Right? The Christ is God, but Christ is not the same as Jesus. The Christ existed from all eternity. Jesus has only existed for 2,000 years as a template, a model, an icon, an archetype of what we also are to become, to put together fully human and fully divine in one person. So that's why your classic Eastern icons, he's always holding two fingers up. He's saying, I'm both. Uh, And I hold them together in one person. So uh, usually if I just say this, you see this huge aha on even uh, former Christians. Well, no one ever told me that, you know. So now, can you feel the difference? Jesus' divinity is not exclusive divinity. It's inclusive. Inclusive. Because there's an invitation there. If Jesus offers something I can be invited into or models or reveals. He is what I have done, you also must do, exactly as it says in John's Gospel, you know. I have come back to take you with me, so that where I am, you also may be. I mean, this was said by the early Eastern Fathers. Creation is the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. God takes what he creates back into himself, and we sit at the table, which is why all those images of banquet tables are so common to Jesus. This is good stuff. You don't need to apologize to anybody for this because we're not talking about the triumphalism of the Christian religion. It doesn't therefore need to compete with other religions. And and you don't need to join the Christian religion to enjoy your place at the table. Now, if uh, Jesus rightly understood is the shortcut, the way you have a shortcut on your laptop, you know, he's the shortcut to get you. But you have to understand Jesus inside the Trinity and not talking an exclusive imperialistic message. Where we got off to a bad foot, and here I blame my Roman Catholic Church, is our great compromise with Constantine in 313, where he became the imperial religion of the Western Empire. And once we identify with empire, we needed an imperial notion of religion, a kingly notion of religion. We're We're back to the pyramid. Whereas the Cappadocian fathers were talking about God being a circle, not a pyramid. But we prefer pyramids to circles. What the doctrine of the Trinity does, perichoresis, circle dance, literally in the Greek, uh, is return us to a, 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 a dynamic notion of God as the center flow inside of everything. It's not top down anymore. Picture a spinning top inside of everything as the energy of God that just keeps it flowing. And this is the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just spinning. Maybe it's called photosynthesis in a plant that draws the energy of the sun into itself. Everything is trying to make itself live, you know, and love. It's so beautiful once you get it. You, you cannot not be a mystic. 
Mm. once you get a Trinitarian notion of God. You can't. He just drives you toward mysticism. Mm. But I don't think I answered your question again, did I? Well, no, I, I go on my little tirades. Oh, you answered it beautifully, but there was one aspect, and that was this cosmic Christ term. Oh, yeah. So how does that sort of, oh, okay. how do you use that term? Well, I hope God gives me another year. Next April, May, I want to write the sequel to The Divine Dance, which is, and the title I see in it now is Christ is not Jesus' last name. Let's just get rid of that once and for all. <laughs> and nine out of ten Christians act as if it is. Right? The Christ existed from all eternity. What formed Franciscan Christology because of Francis's intuitive love of nature and animals and creation was much more the first chapter of Colossians, the first chapter of Ephesians, the prologue to John's Gospel, the first paragraph of Hebrews, the first letter, it's always the first, uh, of First John, where they all say that Christ existed from all eternity, you know? <laughs> Jesus, and then the sermons in Acts, not all of them, but some of them, say Jesus became the Christ, or Jesus revealed the Christ. So the first incarnation is now, and we're the first generation that has a number for it, is approximately 13.6 billion years ago. That's the incarnation, right? When God decided to manifest God's self, that's the, the, the Christ, you see? Jesus, when that took personal shape and form, as First John says, of a face that we could fall in love with, that happened 2,000 years ago. But you see why this is so essential. Or otherwise, everybody before 2,000 years ago, which was a lot of human beings, by the way, yeah. a lot of civilizations, they were all just throwaway people. Yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. That can't be true. <laughs> that God was creating generations of women and children just like your wife and your children who loved one another just as much as you love. But no, he's just waiting for the Catholics to come along. <laughs> I don't believe that for a moment, all right? We have to have universal incarnation that God has been speaking since the beginning of time. Uh, you know that the first verse of the Bible, uh, scholars just recently taught me this, that what is usually translated, the spirit hovered over chaos. You know? They say the verb that's used there is the verb that is used for a mother hen protecting her little chicks or warming her brood, a brood hen. And so it's an evolutionary word, the very first, first verse of the Bible. God is a brood hen warming this creation to bring it to wholeness. Isn't that beautiful? Well, Genesis 1, 1, 2, you know? But we had a much more static notion of God, therefore a static notion of creation, a transactional notion of salvation, not a transformational notion. It was all inert, inert, very, you understand, uh, top-down, always top-down. Not a dance in which we participated. So we all lost out, and we inherently became a competing religion for who has the right imperial God. And the radical implication you're suggesting of if the real incarnation was 13.8, 13.6 yeah, billion years ago, is, yeah. 
um, it then Christ, the presence of God, is evolving and emerging yes. and becoming. It's not a becoming. thing we're like, great, this is how oh. we get to experience it. It's still becoming through us. I mean, I think it's completely orthodox theology, and I could find the chapter and verse to back it up. We are the second coming of Christ. Stop waiting for a man to appear on the clouds. I know that's the mythological way of saying it, you know. But so what, you know? But to know that this whole of creation is the body of Christ. Augustine understood this. Paul understood this. The earlier church got this better than we do. In many ways, we went backwards. We really did. Because it was all non-participatory. We weren't in on the deal. And I think that's probably the single biggest reason why so many people are leaving Christianity. Human beings, it's our natural egocentricity, which God must forgive. But we aren't interested in things that we're not involved in. We just aren't. <laughs> if, if it's just a story about something over there, and I'm not in on the deal, why would I want to pay attention to it? Well, that's the good thing about the good news. We're in on the deal from the beginning. We are the second coming of Christ. We are the body of Christ. But our notion of incarnation was exclusively attributed to the body of Jesus, not the body of Christ. You see, not the body of Christ. So incarnation was not cosmic. It was merely personal. But then when it merely became personal, it became uh, competitive. Tribal. That he's the only one, so uh, Buddha is in competition with him. Mm. You know, we were graced at our Second Vatican Council, uh, which is now our official Catholic belief, that... Uh, Yes, we do believe Jesus is the word of God. We've got to hold on to it. But the other religions are words of God. So at least it moved us that far. That <laughs> we got to honor that these are words. And are you going to throw away words of God? <laughs> They're words of God, too. That's, it's a great clarification of thought. But the typical Catholic in the corner parish in Melbourne has never heard that. Uh, probably. Probably. Well, you're two beautiful men. Thank you. Thank you so much. We will wrap up. Richard Raw, thank you so much for coming beyond ring with us. Along with the orbiting black dog Venus. (laughs) I hope you didn't ruin (laughs) that. Might have heard some pants and some snips and some snuffles. Thank you both. You're a delight. You're a delight. This season was all about lenses. And in seeing through the lenses of others, it certainly reminded us that that we all have a lens and one that will act as a filter through which we see the world. One that impacts what we see and also what we don't see. And this being the case, will we really feel it's important to take responsibility for appreciating that the way we see, whilst seeming clear and correct, is in reality biased and it'll be incomplete and we therefore depend on the perspective of others to develop a fuller picture and also to help us recognize the limits and the blind spots of our own. This season has also been a reminder that when we cover the topics covered in this podcast such as faith, spirituality and the divine we must speak humbly and cautiously aware that as Richard Raw would say our thoughts about God are only ever fingers pointing to the moon. 
Well, to find more RAW, the most centralised place is the Centre for Action and Contemplation website, which is cac.org. There you'll find seminars, articles, books, all sorts of stuff, and it's endless. So whilst I could really point you to any one of his books, a really good starting place might be The Naked Now or Falling Upward or even his most recent book, Just This. And one of the most recent books you would have heard discussed in the interview you just heard is The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation, which was co-written with Mike Morell, who we've also interviewed for a future Beyondering episode. Special thank you to Alana Lewandowski as the featured musician in this episode. Alana is a wonderful song and chant writer who we've recently discovered and she's doing some wonderful work at the moment on a children's meditation album. You can check her out at alanalewandowski.com. And if you enjoyed hearing Raw, the good news is you'll get to hear more Raw throughout Season 3 because in the next season we'll be changing our style a bit. Rather than hearing from one or two guests per episode, next season you'll get to hear from all of our Season 2 guests on one particular theme each episode. So, look forward to hearing all the voices you've appreciated from this season, such as Rob Bell, Robin Myers, Diana Butler-Bass, Alexander Shire and all the rest, as we offer their collected wisdom on some of the biggest questions and biggest challenges to faith. So, from Matt and Lucas here at the Beyonder Dome, thanks for journeying with us so far. And thanks, thanks for coming, coming Beyondering. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. This episode was produced by Adam Ball and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyondering live events or book, line and thinker, the Beyondering Book Club, go to www.beyondering.com.au. Well done on setting this interview up with Richard Raw, Matthew. I'm, I know just how excited you've been. Yeah. yeah uh, w- one thing. Here, put this on. A bathrobe? Yeah. Uh, in order to get the interview, I, I kind of had to pretend that, that you and I were his two Australian masseuses. Right. That's the way. Yep. Ooh. Ah. How's that for you, Richard? Are you starting to relax? You've been wonderful so far. Do you uh, be a bit more comfortable if I just move this towel? Go right ahead. 
We're sorry to charge you so much, but we've travelled a long way from Australia, so we don't come cheap. You guys are worth it. Adney, uh, the lotion we're using isn't organic. I'm sorry. I hope that's okay. This is good stuff. You don't need to apologise to anybody for this. Ah, uh, I think I've found the problem. Sh should I press here? You're right on. I've heard some people will go to any length to get an interview with you, Richard. But so what, you know? There. There. Ugh. There we go. I think you'll find Jesus himself couldn't give you a better rub down. Oh my God, what 